listening to A Little Too Quiet. This is the Ferndale Library Podcast, brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. Today we have our next installment in the Information Literacy Series. In a few minutes, we'll be talking with Laura Schiebel, Assistant Professor at Wayne State's School of Information Sciences. Librarian Michelle Williamson is joining me as always. Before we get into our talk with Schiebel, though, we wanted to talk a little bit about journalism's ethics and standards, which is a very important thing to remember now that we're kind of in the wild west of media just kind of coming at us all the time on social media. You can never really be sure where this headline is taking you when it comes to the legitimacy of the outlet. News outlets in general have taken a hit in recent years with charges of fake news and people boasting about not trusting certain sources. Publications that had once held the very highest esteem were not immune to these criticisms, but to a certain extent, it is a good thing that we would be willing to question our sources. Not necessarily all out doubting something just because it doesn't fit our worldview, but a a certain amount of caution or taking things with a grain of salt perhaps is always advisable because frankly, there are so many more places to learn about world events than your local newspaper or nightly newscast. And the internet seems to have birthed an unending selection of places to get the news. Sometimes those internet sources are giving you the quote-unquote news. Can't see it over the podcast, but we definitely did the air quotes with our fingers. We have addressed the SIFT method here before, where you investigate your source on your own based on what you've encountered, usually through the internet. But what do other websites say about it? Does the process of investigating and fact-checking ever have a political bent? It can be confusing to tell which sources are reputable and which ones aren't. So let's talk about that. Despite political bent, what are the benchmarks that mainstream media, including small-town papers and programs, should meet in order to publish a story? Start with the publication's code of ethics. While most news sources will have their own, most codes will cover the common principles of truthfulness, accuracy, objectivity, impartiality, fairness, and public accountability. Do an online search for the name of the publication along with Code of Ethics to learn how a source holds itself accountable in reporting. If a source doesn't have a Code of Ethics, that's a red flag. It doesn't mean you can't read them, but you'll want to have a more skeptical eye on their reporting and read more publications in addition to that one. What are some common standards to look out for? Corrections, called corrigendum by newspapers. Does your source print a correction in the next issue when a factual error is found? Sources, does the publication identify their source and explain why that person is credible and authoritative? And fairness. Does the news source stick to the facts and avoid avoid inflammatory language? These are just a few of the many considerations publications must consider when reporting the news. We've included a link in the show notes to the Associated Press's standards and practices if you'd like to see an example. And when it comes to journalists, their first obligation is to the truth. It is a discipline for verifying information and reporting it objectively. When you click to open an article you found on the internet, ideally you are receiving most of what you need to know within the lead paragraph. But that's not always the case. Sensationalized headlines tend to dominate what is shared, suggesting that 
what's usually taken for being news, again air quotes, is really something that's pushing an agenda. With that, we are going to be changing gears now just a bit to talk a bit about history, specifically the history of public health reporting and a few alarming cases where the truth had quite a difficult time making it to the surface. We'll be talking with Professor Laura Schiebel of Wayne State University, as we said, who has done quite a lot of research on public health. She co-edited the book, Misinformation and Mass Audiences, and has been a previous panelist for our information literacy event in 2018. This is our chat. I think there's a lot of history, though, that you've looked into that offers some precedent for today when it comes to how confusing the messaging can be. So for folks who might not be aware, can you talk about some of the stuff you've looked into specifically in the Tobacco Institute, the Incorporated Industry Trade Group, and this sort of, uh, quote unquote, public relations efforts that they were kind of putting on in the mid-1960s? So the tobacco industry and their relationship with information and misinformation really is a tragic example of how powerful vested interests can frame the messages that we as a society are exposed to. And so in 1950, there was a prominent JAMA article, the Journal of the American Medical Association, that indicated the majority of people who had lung cancer were moderate or heavy smokers. And four years later, however, in their public relations efforts, the tobacco industries had a major public relations effort and public advertising in hundreds of newspapers in the United States. Hundreds, meaning that as many as, say, 43, 44 million Americans were exposed to these. Also, if you think back to the 1950s, the population in the United States was smaller. Right. So a great proportion of people who lived in the United States were exposed to these ads about the cigarette controversy. And in this advertisement, they claimed that they did not believe that tobacco was harmful to health, that that was their sincere belief, and that they pledged to be involved in research to investigate the relationship between health and use of tobacco, and they also said that they would cooperate closely to safeguard the public health. So this is four years after the major article came out showing that there clearly was an association. And even at the um, later, just around 2002 actually, there was a study that looked back at five decades of tobacco industry documents. and. As early as the 1950s, researchers who worked in tobacco or the tobacco industry believed that smoking cigarettes was harmful to health. Yet as late as 1999, the tobacco industry tried to claim that such a connection had not been proven, which I think is incredible. Yeah. 1999 really isn't all that long ago. No. And even by putting out this frame of reference out into the public, that it can affect how people view the question. We see this in other questions as well, including those where we have um, vested interests, whether it be things such as related to the environment, whether it's related to, say, nutrition is one that is a especially slippery subject in things like sugar and processed food. And even today, though, that we see that these types of issues continue to 
be a factor in the tobacco industry, for example, with vaping. In some senses, we can kind of see some inventions or innovations, if you will, in a way are like a type of experiment on society that these things go out into the world before we really know the effects, let alone the long-term effects. And there's a lot of small ways that tobacco kind of shapes what we see. For example, to on our food, we have lists of ingredients, what's in the food that we're eating. But if we were to have a list of ingredients in a pack of cigarettes, we'd have to have like a whole pamphlet. <laughs> I don't know if it might change the packaging in itself. More recently, in 2008, there was um, some new regulations that went in, including one that gives incentive to making modified list tobacco products or MRTPs. And essentially, if a company can show that their tobacco product is less harmful, not unharmful, but less harmful, they can claim that on their packaging. And you can see that for people who use tobacco to be able to use a type of tobacco that is less injurious to health might be something that they're interested in doing. And we see that with how the um, cigarettes have been marketed over time with like low tar and different things like this, things that really make some cigarettes seem less harmful, even though it just seems that way. So speaking of relatively recent misinformation, can you talk to us a little bit about the drawn out span of misinformation between uh, 1998 and 2010 with the Wakefield study on vaccinations and the inevitable retraction. It seems sometimes that the harmful impacts of misinformation can't be undone, even when they are retracted. So to start with, this case, it involves vaccinations and people's beliefs about the safety of vaccinations. Before starting, let us say that vaccinations, along with public water systems, are some of the two triumphs of public health. There are things that have led to us being healthier societies more than most any other thing that we can think of. And so in 1998, Andrew Wakefield published a study and it had a very small number of participants. And this study is claimed to establish a link between the MMR vaccine and autism. And I feel tremendous guilt just saying that because that's not the implicit. <laughs> but it later came to light that at that time he was, I guess, I believe he's, he had his medical license for both, but perhaps still Dr. Wakefield, had actually a financial interest in showing this was the case. And it also came to light later that he actually selected what he included in that study in a way that would not be accepted today and was not accepted at that time either. But one of the really tragic things about this case was it was published in The Lancet, which is one of the most prestigious journals that there are in medicine. I mean, JAMA, The Lancet, these are definitely things that people look to for important studies and things that really they believe to have been subject to a strong peer review so that, you know, other scientists who read it, who are knowledgeable in the subject area, support the methods and study claims. Even like given the standard of what the Lancet generally publishes, that this paper, given the number of subjects that it involved, really wouldn't meet the standards of the Lancet. Nonetheless, it was published. And through a painful process, it took actually 12 years to be retracted. And during that time, that being in the Lancet is likely part of it. And also perhaps because it was controversial, because that means it's in the news, that the ideas it presented actually took hold. And on the one hand, I think for all parents, decisions that 
they make with their own child are, it's, you know, some of the most important things that you can do. And you estimate risk differently. That said, through being misinformed, that the basis for which people are estimating risk and making decisions is turned upside down. And one of the big problems with vaccinations is this is one of the cases, and I think today we are all intimately acquainted with the idea that we are not islands and we're dependent on each other, especially when it comes to issues of public health. With vaccinations to get herd immunity, you have to have a large portion of people vaccinated. And when people start to choose not to vaccinate medically, like people who have a medical choice to vaccinate or not vaccinate, choose not to, that puts not only these people at risk, it especially puts people who, for health and medical reasons, can't get vaccinations, say they have a compromised immune system. And when a certain proportion of folks stop being vaccinated, then that actually puts um, people more broadly at risk. And especially if you think about children, that they get vaccinated over time. So there's windows there where the children are just not vaccinated yet. Those are two potent examples, the tobacco industry, the vaccinations of vested interests working to get misinformation out. Something else that you've done is that, you know, folks might take misinformation with a bit of a grain of salt. They might say, oh, well, maybe a lie gets out there, but then the truth gets out and everything's better, right? But you've actually done research that has shown there's real cost. Even uh, we're talking about real money here, too, not even just the psychological cost, right? There's a financial cost, too, to sometimes to misinformation. This actually is research that was done in the UK by others. I have not yet located anything similar in the United States and haven't done the same myself. But in the UK, some they looked at the cost of associated with vaccines and people wrongly held beliefs about vaccines. And there's cost in terms of human health on the one hand, and you have people, you know, are, who are sick when they don't need to be. And you also have, in some cases, um, preventable, serious disabilities or even death. And on the other hand, that there's some science that informs science. And within science, we can come to a consensus, say, if we're fluent in that topic area based on the science for science. But typically, since science has its own languages and its different fields, it's not necessarily something that's easily consumable by people. A lot of times, scientists get stuck on words like proving things. And it means something completely different from a science and research perspective. And it's really hard to get over something. But... Um, you might hear a lot about translational medicine. And so the science that informs science is there, but then you also have to translate that science for people who practice in a field, for professionals who practice in a field, for people who make policy, and for people more generally who will make decisions and alter their behaviors on what they believe to be true. And so then you have in health these public information campaigns. You know, we can kind of think of like the PSAs that we've seen over time growing up, and some of them are more memorable than others. Okay. And I think from my formative years, the um, eggs on the fry pan, we do brain on drugs was right. kind of that one. <laughs> but to really um, get the message across about vaccine, that this is something that's been really resistant to public information campaigns. And say currently one of the concerns with um, that push to develop vaccines for COVID is that 
there's broader implications if a vaccine isn't tested appropriately and across a broad range of people so that we can have an estimate of its efficacy, how well it works, and also like what types of conditions and in what context it may work more or less well. Say, we've seen that, say, like with different ages, there's different effects and maybe if people have different co-occurring conditions or so we have to test across a broad range of people. But since vaccines are kind of seen as in a like pot, what people believe about one can be transferred to another. And so that's, you know, every single time it's like why it's really important to get it right. And also like one of the reasons that we have typically the regulations we do around health and medical research and different standards of doing things. Laura, you served as a co-editor for the recently released book, Misinformation in Mass Audiences. Uh, what was your experience of working on that book as an editor? And what are some of your takeaways or anything that stuck out to you about the evidence and ideas that you researched there? I feel, I feel really fortunate that it was a really fun project and I worked with a terrific group of people. I think one of the characteristics of this edited volume that was especially great was that it cut across a lot of different fields. So we had some people who are experts in environmental misinformation and writing about really interesting things like where people are trying to do things, trying to be environmentally conscious and doing things that they think are good for the environment, like idling cars for a certain period of time. When actually, it's you want to do the exit. Like you don't need to idle your car for um, two minutes or three minutes or whatever it might be. And that's actually negative for environment. But, you know, people trying to do good, I think that's actually kind of like a heartwarming sort of thing. But, so on the one hand, we have really fascinating things like that. And on the other hand, we had people from psychology and talking about our, you know, the cognitive science of misinformation and how we understand things and think about them. And, you know, how like actually very minute things can influence our understanding of the world. And that, I think that whole topic is really fascinating. And of course, um, tobacco research and vaccinations. And, and then also, um, as far as different ways that journalists have tried to present different sides of news stories over time. Like at one time, it was more popular to say, have someone on one side of an issue and someone on the other side of the issue. And maybe even if there really weren't two sides to the issues, it would be like having someone on one side of the vaccination issue and the other side of the vaccination issue. On the one hand, we want to have a better understanding of a person who is on the misinformed side. And trying to understand the way they think about things can be helpful, but presenting it as a viable option is important. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a topic that I'm sure um, yeah, you've, you've had experience with. It seems like this issue of misinformation has become a, a pretty big focus for you. Do you remember why it became such an important focus for you? Do you remember why you became so drawn to it? Why you, Or even just why you see it as something very important? That- I was actually drawn to this topic before, say, I even did my master's degree and became a librarian. Um, in the late 90s, that I spent a significant amount of time out of the country, especially in Istanbul, Turkey. At the time, I was fairly fluent in Turkish after a bit. So there were two experiences there that really seemed in some way just kind of amazing to me. Today, it sounds like it was really naive. But one, um, I heard two radio stories. 
one on the Voice of America, the VOA, and another on a Turkish station. And they were reporting about a protest that was in the east of the country. And that they were talking about the same thing and attributing like the same causes and goals and even just what happened, like how many people were there at this protest. It was so amazing to me. I remember like just wanting to run and find someone else who would happen to listen to both of those shows, but just listen to them in passing. Today, that seems so complex for different places to report events differently and crowd sizes and everything else. But at the time, it, it really struck me. And being in two different languages, too, that there's a separation there as far as what you tell people. Like, you know, definitely different groups of people. Then the other thing is, so I was there in the late 1990s and there was a earthquake at that time in 99 and it was dreadful. Like, I think somewhere around 20,000 people died. But, um, afterwards, a lot of organizations from countries in the area and actually from all over came to help. One of the really early prominent countries that came to help people in Turkey was, um, Greece. Traditionally, there's been an animosity between the two countries. But shortly after that, there was a, a big newspaper spread about how the Ministry of Education was going to change the textbook and how they presented information about Greece in a historical sense. Wow. <laughs> and I think, I mean, in a sense that we know this happens. We know that historians like view history in different ways. You know, a lot, it's kind of a common saying that the victor writes history. So it's not as if there's one view of history and we know that. But at the same time, to have a big newspaper story about what a government ministry is going to present to say fourth and fifth graders. I don't know. I guess in part just because it's like open and out there and like, hey, they, they tip the ledger. <laughs> We're going to like, right. you know, they've gotten us thinking about some of the good things that we've had between us and some of our, our commonalities that mean that we're, you know, not always on opposite sides. We've had these positive experiences too. So that's kind of my lay person's view on, um, at a societal level, like misinformation and just that it can really affect us at a societal level. From more from my dissertation research when I was a PhD student, I actually studied how in a number of different fields, a specific type of research study is used and say systematic reviews and meta-analyses. These are important because they're studies that gather together evidence from a bunch of other studies. And so rather than just having one study that says some one thing, one study that says another thing, you can say across all these different studies, this is what's been found. So it's a much stronger research base or evidence base. And these became the standard of how we decide best practices or state of the art in fields like health and medicine. There's and some some of the early studies that really kind of put forward this way of doing things looked at different issues such as how geography played an important role in the types of decisions doctors made in practice for their patients because people in some areas would learn about practices much earlier than people in others. And so you could um, be receiving a treatment that was like way outdated and um, also with updating textbooks. And things like this. And so there became this real push to try to have practice be informed by like the best evidence of the time. Yes. We're all 
we can always use such more, but we don't want to be doing, we don't necessarily want to be doing things that we did like 20, 30 years ago. Right. We can something better. You're also talking about just how information can shape the world. In, in these subtle ways. Jumping back to your research on tobacco and vaccines, you've done a lot of work with institutions researching public health, health records, health research. Why is it that this area uh, of study fascinating and intriguing to you? And what were some of the primary takeaways for you in terms of the importance of public health? I'm actually working right now to finish up some work with folks that I've been working with at UNC for a number of years now. Mm-hmm. And one really great thing about this group of people is they're interested in what we call system science methods. And so in some research, we might look for, say, a single item that causes something else and establish like cause and effect between these different entities or variables or what have you. A lot of times, though, if we, you know, think about a lot of things in the world, we can't isolate things in that way. And sometimes we have like feedback loops. So say if we kind of think about feedback loops, um, I was thinking, I was reading something the other day about like how dogs' brains work extra hard to figure out words they don't know. And, and someone suggested that maybe it's because that word could mean something good for them, like maybe a treat or something like that. And so that got me thinking about like all the words that like, I use like leave it for my dog not to dig into a lawn or something. And, you know, every time I say that and he's doing something he wants to do, but I'm saying don't do this thing you want to do. And his brain isn't very engaged because he knows that word means something that doesn't have a good like benefit for him. Like, he gets no treat out of it. He gets nothing out of it, really. And so that kind of pushes him to ignoring me more. <laughs> and so that's kind of like a negative feedback loop. Where is like the lack of good things coming to him in just kind of a voice that isn't his favorite, but not me, tells him, you know, to stop doing what he likes to do. So in a lot of cases, that rather than reducing how things work to a particular point, seeing the connections and the relationships between conditions or between, you know, events that we observe can be very important or say experiences. Say, for example, for children, there's, you know, this idea of ACEs. If we look at the traumatic events that they've experienced as a child, we can count the ACEs and make, um, you know, estimate difficulties later in life. And in a lot of cases, rather than saying, you know, there's this single event that you can really see that there's a great impact of having multiple, and in this case, multiple events, say, a young age. And a lot of times when you have um, multiple factors, that, uh, you know, the whole, what someone experiences can really be a lot more than the sum of its parts. And say, today, you know, with everything experiencing with COVID, we can imagine that, say, if someone's having financial difficulties, if they're having health difficulties, they're losing their health insurance, it, it can, people can really get mired in a set of difficulties and it can make the whole of the problems much more difficult to deal with than if they had just one at a time. So in health, a lot of times you see how the different relationships between things such as behaviors, things such as you know, behaviors, genetic predisposition dispositions are social circles that um, you know people have even found that there seems to be some sort of um, social set of social factors related to say obesity 
like that maybe this isn't you now it's not so much in individual condition but either you know people's behaviors and how they spend their time what they value maybe folks who like doing the same things gravitate together or maybe learn from each. so there's a lot of different ways that say ideas and behaviors and practices can be engaged. and you see different aspects of that in things such as health records that and you also see a lot of empty spaces where you could know more and this is in part because some people don't get as much health care as others they don't have as much access and um and also that you know we there's a lot of regulations there's a lot of specific definitions in health and medicine what insurance companies reimburse vary by the medical diagnostic code and so you have like a lot of a lot of different factors that influence individuals and their health and doctors and how they practice and other elements of that domain. And we we caught you with some research speak there. ACEs, which would be for kids, that would be adverse childhood experiences, right? Right. Um, Sorry about that. <laughs> it's good, right? Actually, my co-host Michelle helped me because I was just picturing uh, a deck of playing cards in my head. <laughs> Uh, finally, we've talked about confirmation bias a bit on a previous episode. Can you share your takeaways concerning something folks in the research community refer to as motivated reasoning? A lot of times, uh, things that we believe that we don't believe something in isolation, but we have like these kind of cognitive social structures where our beliefs are kind of a web or a lattice. And if we learn or hear something new, it's really easier to assimilate something that supports our world view. If we have something that goes against it and we can't say like, you know, modify a bit what we currently believe to accommodate it, then we have to deal with it in some other way. And so this means that, you know, we're more likely to accept with less questioning something that goes along with how we see the world and what we believe to be true. And then also to say, reject things that do not go with that belief. And in some cases, actually, if um, depending on say where that idea comes from that doesn't fit with what we believe, it comes from say a source that we don't trust, it can actually in some cases reinforce opposite belief. And one thing actually that I think is really important to think about this, however, is that I always try to remind myself that other people's lives are likely more different than I can imagine. And I think this is helpful because there's so much negativity and polarity out in the world right now. And in some cases, there are things that you know I might strongly disagree with or even think are dangerous or whatever. But that other people, I mean, their experiences in life shape their worldview. And they often, you know, act and see and interpret the world accordingly. And I think that that is something that is helpful when we relate to other people to see that, yes, this person may be very different from me. And at the same time, you know, maybe forging some sort of understanding is important for us. And similarly, that sometimes we just assume people are similar to us. And that can actually really be hurtful because we have expectations for them as far as what they're able to do, how they're like what resources they have and everything else. And sometimes we probably put undue expectations on people where 
it might be like a real burden. So I think that in both cases, assuming people are too much like you can be something to be careful of. And then also kind of villainizing people who see the world differently. I think that research can provide helpful information and really is a way to establish what we know and can know about a given topic or question at this point in time. Mm-hmm. We need a lot of diverse views because and that we have the danger of if everyone in science thinks alike, then they're all going to ask the same question. Mm-hmm. If we have some of those people who have different experiences, then we have broader base of perspectives from which we can even select what we think about how we ask questions. And I mean, in a lot of ways, that's just like selection development. It's like selection. When um, what people write news stories about, who they talk to, and kind of that selection and what we don't even know that we don't know. Right. Don't know is important. It's not on our radar because we lack the perspective or experience are things that I think, you know, hopefully we can learn how and we can draw on the experience of others to really address questions at that level. Right. And I think that's um, a real challenge and also something that's really interesting. And that was our chat with Laura Schiebel, assistant professor at Wayne State University's School of Information Sciences. She's done a lot of research on public health reporting and also misinformation. She co-edited the book, Misinformation and Mass Audiences, which we circulate here at the Ferndale Library. And this is our podcast, the Ferndale Library podcast, A Little Too Quiet, which is brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. I'm your host, Jeff Milo. We produce this in-house here at the Ferndale Library. Joining me, as always, for our information literacy installments was our librarian, Michelle Williamson. If you'd like to support this podcast, just go to ferndalefriends.org where you can donate, you can rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend about this podcast if you like it. We appreciate you listening. It's a little too quiet. <laughs>